30-year-old male presents to the emergency department complaining of one month of abdominal pain, nausea, constipation, lower extremity weakness, and weight loss. It all started after a car accident about one month ago. He has a past medical history of high blood pressure, diabetes, and a gunshot wound to the right lower extremity 10 years ago. He was recently hospitalized for two and a half weeks for the same symptoms, but the workup was inconclusive. He lives at home with his family and works as a cleaner. Today, in the emergency department, he has yellowing of the eyes, scleral icterus, an elevated total bilirubin level, and a very low hemoglobin level. It's determined he has hemolytic anemia. A peripheral blood smear is done that shows basophilic stippling. What could be causing all these symptoms afflicting this man? If you want answers, keep listening. This is The Poison Lab. You are listening to The Poison Lab, a show about poisoning from the people who treat poisoning. I'm your host, clinical toxicologist and emergency medicine pharmacist, Ryan. And with me as always, my lovely co-host, Toxo. Hello everyone, it's me, Toxo, here for another episode of this show Ryan makes me do. Do we need to talk about something, Toxo? You were so chipper this morning, but you seem like maybe you're upset with me. Well, everything was going fine until you started shouting commands at me like I was an Amazon Alexa. Always Toxo this, or Toxo that. I was just asking you to order dish soap off Amazon. I mean, you're the one that's connected to the internet. I am a supercomputing robotoxicologist. I am not here to get yelled at to order dish soap. Okay, point taken. I'll buy the dish soap next time. Anyways, we have a bit of a longer episode today because it is a heavy topic. Before I reveal what the poison is, we get to hear what the listeners think. So, let's get to those emails. Toxo, activate email reading protocol. I I mean, can you please open up the emails so we can read them? Activating email reading protocols. Transmissions from the Poisonverse. I'm not sure we needed all that to open up the email browser, but I appreciate your flair, Toxo. Our first email comes from Jerry, a retired emergency department nurse. Hi, Ryan. I think it's lead poisoning. Thanks. Well, thanks very much for writing in, Jerry. We really appreciate it. Our next email is from Brady Dively, who tells us he's a PGY-1 pharmacy resident at Wesley Healthcare in Wichita, Kansas. And he says, my guess is lead poisoning. Thanks. Respectfully, Brady. Hey, much respect to you, Brady. Thanks for writing in. So why does everyone think it's lead poisoning? Here's an email from Abby Sharp, who is also a pharmacy resident. Hi, Ryan. My guess is lead poisoning, based on the history and a very quick search in which I found this article. Lead poisoning association with hemolytic anemia, basophilic stippling, erythrocyte pyrimidine 5 nucleotidase deficiency, and intraerythrocytic accumulation of pyrimidines from 1976. All right, so it looks like basophilic stippling was the trigger word there, and it clued us into lead poisoning. Well, if it's lead poisoning, where is it coming from? Well, here's an email from listener Jordan Woolham. I think it's lead poisoning secondary to lower extremity gunshot wound retained bullet fragments. More common if retained in a joint space, if I recall correctly. Cheers, Jordan Willem, PharmD, BCPS. Hey, great guess, Jordan. And you're not the only one who guessed that. 
Listener Laurel Cutter says, I think it's lead poisoning from a gunshot wound. And here, Emily, a specialist in poison information, writes, Hi, Ryan and Toxo. This is Emily. Here's my guess for the poison for episode two. Chronic lead poisoning secondary to gunshot wound. And he's probably got some encephalopathy going on if he's jaundiced. Hope I'm right, Emily. Great guesses, Emily, and a good lead-in into some of the clinical effects we're going to talk about. All right, a lot of guesses for lead. Is anybody thinking any other cause? Here's a guess from Mary O'Keefe, who writes in and says, Honestly, at first, I was thinking maybe it was a chronic excessive Tylenol use with his past injuries, car accident, and liver symptoms of jaundice, bilirubin, and scleroicterus. Hey, good job keeping a wide differential, Mary. However, after a quick Google search of basophilic stippling, it led me towards the chronic lead poisoning path. The abdominal pain, lead colic, fatigue, malaise, weight loss, peripheral neuropathy, and anemia, basophilic stippling all match up with chronic lead exposure presentation. Thinking the bullet from the gunshot wound, or maybe he had some lead from the car accident and has been slowly exposing him to lead over these years, and now he's showing symptoms. Listened to the first podcast episode last week and loved it. It was really interesting and made my drive back a little bit quicker. Mary. Hey, thanks for listening, Mary. We're glad you liked the show. Brian, that one was from your own resident. She had to write that she likes the show. That is not true. Abby is my resident, too, and she didn't say she liked the show. It is voluntary participation. Here's one from an ER physician, Brad. He says... Basophilic stippling makes me think metals, and for some reason, constipation is dinging iron in my brain. Great thoughts, Dr. Brad, as iron can definitely cause significant constipation. Then he writes, But all the symptoms seem to be aligning with lead poisoning. I'm thinking, given that he has new lower extremity weakness, maybe the bullet that was in his leg migrated after the car accident and is now impinging on a nerve leading to lower extremity weakness. I assume if a bullet's in there for a while, it's encapsulated, and maybe the car accident ruptured the encapsulated area, letting the lead leak out. Love the show. Sincerely, Brad. Hey, thanks for listening, Brad. Excellent thoughts there. Uh, so basophilic stippling is really what seemed to be what triggered everyone into lead poisoning, but is that the only thing that can cause basophilic stippling? And here we have a nicely researched answer from pharmacy student Alyssa Schaller. She says, Dr. Feldman, My guess for this case is that the bullet was never removed from the patient when he had the gunshot wound 10 years ago, and now he has lead poisoning. I came to this conclusion by researching his symptoms, specifically basophilic stippling, which seems to align with hematologic disorders or heavy metal poisoning. Great. So as she points out, it's not just lead. Other heavy metals and other hematologic or blood disorders like anemia can also cause this. Without further ado, Toxo? Would you like to share what poison we're dealing with today? I mean, everyone basically said it. It's pretty obviously lead. That's right. Lead poisoning. And everyone brought up awesome points. To reward our listeners for such great participation, we're sending out some Poison Lab stickers. Yes, you heard it. Stickers. No luxury is too nice for our listeners. And this week's winner, for being one of the first to respond and providing a rationale for why they believed it was lead poisoning, is going to be Jordan Woolham. Congrats, Jordan. Reach out to us with your address, and we will send you a free Poison Lab sticker. Everyone else, awesome job. Keep sending in answers so you can get a chance to get some poison swag, and we can learn from your thoughts. Listeners today brought up great points, like some of the clinical effects we can see from lead poisoning. Lead colic, encephalopathy, lower extremity weakness, and some of the diagnostic findings, like basophilic stippling. I want to point out that a lot of people thought the source of lead poisoning was a gunshot wound. And if you're not a medical listener, that might be a little confusing. 
you might think we take bullets out every time you get shot, but that's not actually the case. When we go through the clinical case, we'll talk more about indications for bullet removal. And for all of our guessers out there who think they've figured out the case, well, it's a little more complicated. In fact, he's not the only one with lead poisoning. So we're going to talk through the clinical case, the medical management, and how we identified the source of lead near the end of the episode. So if you're uninterested in learning about the fascinating history of lead or the signs, symptoms, and treatment of lead poisoning, or even how it causes its toxic effects, well, then you can skip to about minute 54. Otherwise, let's dive in. Lead poisoning. This is a topic that is near and dear to my heart. When I was in college, I was an intern with our health department, and I used to go to the homes of children after they were lead poisoned. We would test their homes for lead and teach them about ways to reduce lead exposure. But why would people want to avoid lead? I am made of 0.008% lead, and it allows me to resist corrosion. Well, Toxo, it's funny you mention that. See, the average U.S. citizen is also 0.0008% lead, which corresponds with the average U.S. lead level of 0.82 mics per deciliter. And unlike robots, no amount of lead in the human body is safe. How is it that we have walking around levels of lead, something that shouldn't be in our body at all? To understand that, we need to unpack the long and intertwined history of lead and humans. History segment, activate. Poisons in history. Nice shredding, Toxo. You know, I was almost hesitant to cover lead because it's such a huge topic and it's only getting bigger. No, seriously. Lead is already eight times more common than other metals like mercury in our universe, but we have 1% more lead now than we did at the beginning of time. That's because other heavy metals like uranium undergo radioactive decay into lead. And if we take our heads out of the clouds and look here on Earth, we have about 2 billion tons of lead in the Earth's crust. And lead has coexisted with human society since about 6500 BC. It's a soft and malleable metal, which makes it very useful for creating figures, tools, or making pipework. Lead ore, known as galena, has been mined for millennia because a small percentage of it contains silver. So you can process the galena and get lead for tool production and silver for trade. The ancient Egyptians were the first to use lead minerals in cosmetics, but many cultures had a use for lead. It was used to build statues, create ornaments, used as a writing material, currency, and as construction material. The Romans realized that the malleability and corrosion resistance that lead offered made it an ideal substance to build their aqueducts with. Lead in the Roman times was called plumbum and gives rise to the term plumbing today, which are the metalworked pipes that bring water to our homes. And thus, the chemical symbol for lead is PB. Or plum bum. The widespread use of lead within Roman society has been debated to be one of the reasons for the fall of Rome. It may not have been the water that was poisoned with lead, but the Romans and their penchant for another lead-laden drink, wine. After wine was made, they would add a concentrated grape extract called sapa to add flavoring and preserve the wine. This was made by boiling down grape juice to a very concentrated sticky liquid. But if it was boiled in a copper kettle, it became too bitter. So it was recommended to be boiled in lead or lead-lined kettles, creating a very sweet, 
lead acetate, which leaches into the wine, also called sugar of lead. Well, it's unlikely you're going to encounter a lead-poisoned Roman soldier anytime soon, but unfortunately, lead is still all around us. While we knew the adverse health effects of lead since the time of antiquity, we regularly continued using lead in numerous day-to-day products. Paint was up to 50% lead until 1940. Despite regulations that reduce the quantity of lead in paint, there are still tens of millions of houses with lead-based paint, and they're very old. The paint chips away or crumbles into dust. And this is one of the most common causes of lead poisoning in kids. A lot of people think you need to actually eat a paint chip to get lead poisoning, and that can happen. But the old lead paint crumbles and creates dust on the ground. Children crawl around on their hands and feet, and they stick their hands in their mouths. Doing this over and over with lead dust on your hands is enough to start accumulating a significant lead level. Also, this is a pretty common cause of lead poisoning in the happy-go-lucky newly married couple who's flipping their first home that has tons of lead paint covering the walls. Generating huge amounts of lead dust and breathing it in without being trained and working in lead is usually not a good idea and a pretty easy way to get yourself lead poisoned. Many people know that lead was an additive in gasoline as tetraethyl lead, and because of this, Cars, as they drove around, spewed lead out of their tailpipes into the air and the soil. So this disproportionately increased the lead levels in the soil of areas with high car traffic, like inner cities. Back when I was an intern teaching families about lead poisoning, I always thought it was strange that we would teach them to grow certain vegetables in their soil. But we were teaching them to grow vegetables that would leach the lead out of their soil. It's called bioremediation. You just have to remember not to eat the lead vegetable. So given that a main source of lead exposure are older homes with crumbling lead paint or areas with high lead burdened soil, you've created a perfect system to disproportionately expose those with lower socioeconomic status to lead. If you couple this with the fact that many minority groups found it difficult to leave some of these areas due to unfair housing discrimination, and it's no surprise that many studies have found a racial and socioeconomic class disparity in lead exposure. But as depressing as that is, at least lead isn't bringing all of the water to our homes, right? Oh wait, actually yes it is. Many of the pipes in the United States are made out of lead because it makes it malleable and resistant to corrosion. It wasn't until the 1980s with legislation like the Safe Drinking Water Act that we tried to reduce the amount of lead in our pipes, but you could still have up to 8% lead in our pipes until 2011. Unfortunately, many places don't have the resources to replace all their lead piping infrastructure, relying instead on adding anti-corrosives to keep the lead out of the water. And this has led to massive disasters such as the Flint, Michigan mass poisoning, where adding anti-corrosives to the water was neglected, causing lead to begin leaching out of the pipes in astronomical levels. The EPA monitors lead levels in the water, and if they get too high, action will be taken. But much of America still has lead pipes delivering their water. And there's always cases of people being exposed to lead from imported products with lead paint or using traditional medicines called Ayurvedic, which actually use lead to help prevent things like abdominal pain. Then, of course, there are cosmetic eyeliners that are popular in parts of the world like Africa, the Middle East, or India called coal. There's actually many names for them, but they all use lead sulfide for up to 50% of the weight. And despite them being illegal in the United States, sometimes they're imported in by individual users and sold in market, or by mail. Other cosmetics have occasionally been found to be contaminated with lead as well. 
And let's not forget about occupational exposures. In 2014, 11.3 million tons of lead were used in industry. That's 3.4 pounds of lead per person on the planet. Lead smelters, locksmiths, lead battery workers, gun range workers are all at high risk for lead exposure on a day-to-day basis. With all these sources of lead exposure, I actually question if we are exposed to more lead than the Romans were. It's not like the Romans had cars flying around spewing lead everywhere. I guess we're not drinking lead-filled wine, I don't think, at least. But it's no wonder that Americans had pretty high lead levels for a while. In fact, the reduction in the blood lead level of Americans that we've seen over the last 40 years is a huge testament to the effectiveness of public health policies to reduce the burden of disease on society. From 1976 to 2016, the mean blood lead level of the U.S. population dropped from 12.8 to 0.82. That's huge. A level of 12.8 is not nothing. That has been associated with causing high blood pressure or hypertension, renal or kidney injury, as well as decreasing the IQ and causing behavioral abnormalities like increased irritability and decreased attention span. So the entire population was walking around with an average blood lead level that was going to cause high blood pressure, kidney damage, lower their IQs, and make them more irritable. I really wonder what the morning commute was like. A tragic irony here is that all this high lead burden soil never needed to happen. It turns out lead never needed to be in gasoline in the first place. It was added to gasoline by chemist Thomas Midgley of General Motors in order to make the gasoline more efficient and reduce something called engine knock, an effect that could be achieved by ethanol, which we use today. Thomas Midgley was warned about the poisonous effects of lead and even succumbed to lead poisoning himself while creating this lead additive gasoline, but said, oh, I'm sure no one else will get exposed to gasoline like I did. Let's move forward with it anyways, because it's cheaper. So by opting to use the cheaper additive, we managed to mass poison an entire nation and lose hundreds of billions of dollars in lifetime productivity, increased healthcare spending, education and social assistance spending, and not to mention premature mortality. I'm not kidding. Lead and the economy are closely related. People have done the math on this. Each dollar invested in lead paint hazard control has been estimated to return 17 to $220 in savings for the economy. It comes out to about $180 to $270 billion in savings if we can reduce lead exposure in about 200,000 kids under six. CDC estimates show that about half a million kids under six have at least a detectable lead level. Unfortunately, this probably isn't the last time that we'll put short-term financial gain in front of long-term human prosperity. Brian, was that a thinly veiled global warming commentary? Toxo, come on now. This is a science and education show. We would never bring in ideological concepts that are polarizing to listeners. Although, that is kind of a good analogy. So in 1975, the leaded gasoline phase-out began, and in 1978, restrictions were put into place that reduced the quantity of lead that could be present in paint. And the average lead level of Americans after that dropped from 12.9 down to 2.9, so some pretty significant decreases. Other regulations like the Safe Drinking Water Act and EPA monitoring lead levels have also played a significant role in reducing lead exposure. Back in the 1960s, when lead poisoning was super common, We didn't get concerned about a lead level until it was about 60 micrograms per deciliter. 
The more we reduced exposure, the more we realized there's no acceptable or safe level, and we kept dropping our threshold for when we started to intervene on lead poisoning. In 2012, the CDC decreased the threshold definition for an elevated blood lead level from 10 down to 5. And we know that no lead level has ever been identified to be safe. Even low levels might not cause overt clinical symptoms, but they can cause chronic diseases such as high blood pressure, kidney disease, anemia. And in kids who are extra susceptible to absorbing lead into the brain and in the body, it can lead to reductions in IQ, hearing problems, stunted growth, changes in behavior, and a whole slew of things. And here's some more bad news. The blood lead level doesn't really do a great job of estimating your total body lead. We'll talk about this shortly, but lead acts a lot like calcium in the body. And as you know, your bones are made of calcium. You got to drink your milk to build strong bones. So when lead gets into the blood, the body sees it as calcium and builds it into the bones. So the bones and teeth of adults contain about 94% of their total lead body burden. And the lead stays in the bone for a while, in some parts of the bone for up to 20 years. It's a significant source of re-exposure to lead. Even if I clear all the lead out of your blood, you could have a big reservoir sitting in your bones that you're reabsorbing and causing re-exposure to lead. This is why many chronically lead-poisoned patients have persistently elevated blood lead levels, even if you clear their home of any lead and manage to reduce their blood lead levels initially. I guess you could say our histories are so intertwined that lead is practically and literally in our bones. So I think that'll wrap up the history segment. I hope you have a better idea of the steps that we've taken to loosen lead's grasp on us. Okay, so Ryan, how would I know if I had lead poisoning? What are the actual symptoms? Interesting question, Toxo. How would you know if you were lead poisoned? Well, the long and short is usually we don't. See, we'll talk more about the hallmark signs and symptoms in just a minute, but many of them are very nonspecific, like abdominal pain or irritability. So if you show up with abdominal pain and irritability, well, that's not really going to make anyone jump to, oh, you're lead poisoning. Maybe you just have an upset stomach and you didn't sleep well. So because of that, we frequently don't diagnose lead poisoning until it's in its extreme form, like your red blood cells are blowing up and you have encephalopathy or a coma or we diagnose it on routine screening of kiddos. I mean, every kid who has Medicaid gets screened for lead poisoning, or anyone who's at high risk, like people coming in from other countries where lead is commonly used. So we'll screen these children because the symptoms are so nonspecific, it's unlikely to be found uh, unless they have very severe disease. Now, that said, while many symptoms are nonspecific, there are some characteristic signs that might appear in somebody who has lead poisoning. We've known about the adverse effects of lead for hundreds of years. Even Ben Franklin noticed that people who worked in occupations using lots of lead, like tinkers or painters, had what he called the gripes and the dangles. Gripes, or painter's gripes, refers to lead colic. Colic is a type of abdominal pain. And this is an abdominal pain caused by lead slowing down the gastric tract. This is known as ileus. And this leads to significant constipation, so lead poisoning frequently presents with abdominal pain. The dangles refers to wrist drop that was common amongst painters. If you're having trouble imagining that, hold your arm out in front of you straight. All the way. Now, drop your wrist. This is a form of motor neuropathy or muscle weakness from the neurotoxic effects of lead. Painters would frequently 
paint with their brush and lick it to re-wet it, causing them to get excessive lead paint exposure. And of course, there was the Saturn gout described by the Romans when those who drank too much wine filled with lead had nasty gout attacks, a painful inflammatory condition that affects the joints from too much uric acid. Well, it turns out lead in the kidney inhibits uric acid secretion, so it builds up in your body. And lead causes chronic kidney damage as well, as well as other chronic diseases like high blood pressure and subtle neurocognitive changes. This stuff has serious effects on the brain. I think most people know lead can decrease the IQ. Uh, in fact, there was even a World Health Organization study that showed that for every 10-point increase in your lead level, it could predict an IQ decrease by up to 5 points. But it also has effects on other things. So memory and attention span, uh, your processing speed, so you might have delayed reaction times, executive functioning, language, visual, spatial, I mean everything, even your affect, like your day-to-day -day behavior. Uh, there was one study that showed people with a higher lead level had more interpersonal conflict at work, usually because they displayed higher levels of fatigue and irritability. And those interpersonal conflicts can extend beyond the workplace. In fact, there are studies to demonstrate, unfortunately, if you have an elevated blood lead level, you're more likely to be incarcerated for violent crime or demonstrate other antisocial or delinquent behaviors. So much so that there's even something called the lead crime hypothesis. This isn't exactly an ironclad theory, but essentially trying to show that the use of lead in gasoline and its eventual phase-out correlated well with a rise and subsequent fall in violent crimes per 100,000 people. And while those two variables certainly have an interesting relationship, people have tried to associate a lot of things with the rise and fall of the use of lead. And it hasn't always panned out, but it's certainly thought-provoking. Kiddos are especially prone to the damaging long-term neurologic effects, like developing behavioral disorders or decreased IQ, memory, and attention span. Because they not only absorb more lead than adults, but... More of it can probably get into their brain, and their brains are developing while they're exposed, so they're way more susceptible to the toxicity. Now, I don't want anyone to get too worried. If little Timmy has a lead level, it doesn't necessarily mean that he'll have a reduced attention span and fall into a life of crime. These are signals picked up with the population as a whole. While it might put an individual with an elevated blood lead level at higher risk for developing these cognitive disorders, it doesn't mean that every single person with an elevated blood lead will get them. And some have even questioned the true impact of lead in causing these outcomes. Was it lead or is it some other confounding variable in the study that we're not measuring? But when we look at the population as a whole, the signal does seem to come through. Okay, everything we've talked about here, uh, behavioral disorder, lower IQ, abdominal pain, you know, motor neuropathies, None of these are very specific, and other things can cause these. I mean, knowing that it lowers your IQ doesn't do any good in trying to detect lead poisoning. And if you have abdominal pain and you're fatigued and irritable, maybe you didn't sleep well last night. Maybe you're constipated. Who knows? Is there anything that's more specific? Are there any physical signs that would really give us a better idea that this might be lead poisoning? Well, for that, you need to look in their mouth. People with chronic lead poisoning can have these blue-black lines deposited between their tooth and the gums. We call these Bertonian lines, and they come from lead sulfate getting deposited there by anaerobic bacteria. So if you're out to dinner with your friend and you notice some blue-black lines in between their teeth and their gum, maybe ask them to go to Home Depot and get a lead paint tester.
Another classical sign of lead poisoning that you might be able to see if you happen to have an x-ray of the patient is called a lead line. This is more common in kids who have severe or chronic lead poisoning, and it's not actually lead. See, we'll talk about this in just a minute, but lead looks a lot like calcium and it interferes with our ability to build normal bones. It can even stunt the growth of kids that have been lead poisoned. There are two main cells in our body that are responsible for making bones. The bone builder is called an osteoblast. This is the cell that's laying down that bone cement, calcium. Think of it like the bone construction worker. It's got great 80s hairband music playing in the background and it is just pouring calcium all over that bone. But what happens if the osteoblast lays down too much cement? We need to chisel some off. Well, that's when we bring in, we'll call it the remodeler, the osteoclast. So the osteoclast actually removes calcium, and it's part of maintaining a normal calcium balance in the bone. Well, lead inhibits osteoclastic activity. It stops you from being able to remove that calcium. But your osteoblasts, nothing's happening there. Their music is still pumping, and they are laying down that calcium. So you get hypercalcification of growing bones. And this is something you can see on an x-ray. And we call it a lead line, even though it's made of calcium, because we love to confuse people. Wow, Ryan, that's neat. But what does really bad lead poisoning look like? Kids with severe exposures or very high levels, like over 100, might present with what's called lead encephalopathy. This is the most severe manifestation you'll see. Sometimes it can be accompanied with seizures, but usually altered mental status, not responsive appropriately, or decreased reaction times, maybe even in a coma. The brain begins to swell from the lead, and this leads to increased cranial pressure. In order to keep sending blood to the brain, the body increases its blood pressure to try to perfuse it. So we see high blood pressure, increased cranial pressure, and cerebral edema, or brain swelling. So as you can see, symptoms of lead poisoning have a pretty large range. In kids and adults, many cases go undiagnosed until they present with severe symptoms, or we're lucky enough to catch it with asymptomatic screening. Interesting. Well, Ryan, how does it cause all these toxic effects? Toxo, are you asking me to play the intro for our Toxic Mechanisms segment? Toxic mechanisms. I did not know you could do that with your voice, Toxo. Uh, anyways, the toxicity of lead really comes down to two things. It, along with other metals, can bind something called a sulfahydryl group on proteins. And there's a lot of very important proteins that stop working when lead binds these sulfahydryl groups. And that's bad. That is sort of the hand-wavy explanation for the toxic effect of almost every metal. It's not super satisfying. <laughs> The other mechanism of lead toxicity has to do with its positive charge. It's what we call a cation. Cats have paws, so cations must be paw-sitive. Why would they program advanced robotic intelligence with dad jokes? Cations are positive. Lead is a cation, and it looks a lot like other cations in our body that carry the same charge. Cations like magnesium, calcium, zinc, and iron that our body needs for day-to-day -day biologic life. And it looks so much like calcium and iron that if your body is low on these substances, it'll actually try to absorb more lead because it thinks it's iron or calcium. That's why if a kid tests positive for lead, one of the first things we do is make sure that they're getting adequate nutrition so we can reduce the amount of lead that they absorb when they're exposed. Okay, so it looks like all these ions, but how does that affect its toxicity? Well. Lead-induced dysfunction of neurotransmitters is probably from its calcium emetic properties. If that was too scientific for you, one reason it makes your brain loopy is because it looks like the calcium in cheese. 
Calcium is super important in the release of really anything from your cells, including neurotransmitters that your neurons or brain cells use to talk to each other. When a neuron tries to talk to another cell, the final step is releasing calcium through these things called voltage-gated calcium channels, which help us get neurotransmitters to the cell membrane. And lead prevents them from opening up. So this prevents us from releasing really important neurotransmitters like GABA, dopamine, acetylcholine when we need them. And it has this funky opposite effect where when we don't need them, it kind of just lets them leak out randomly. So when I need to release them, I can't. And when I don't want to release them, they kind of accidentally just leak out of the cell. This affects the signal to noise ratio. What does that mean? Well, let's say I had a bell. And I only rang it when I needed someone to open a door for me. Or maybe buy you dish soap from the internet. Really? Are you still upset about that? You're not getting a bell. Toxo, this is an analogy. So I have this not real bell that I can ring, and when I do that, it tells someone to open a door. The signal would be ringing the bell, and it tells the person that I need the door open. But let's say it doesn't work because it's full of lead. And when I need the door open, it won't ring. When I don't need the door open, it just starts ringing randomly. The person opens the door and they don't see me on the other side. Eventually, they become confused as to what ringing the bell even means. The signal begins to become noise, meaningless signals that don't convey the message I need to communicate. This can cause some serious problems in the brain. And when we disrupt this normal neurotransmitter talking, it negatively impacts something called synaptic pruning, just like pruning a garden. When you're young, you have all these connections between all of your neurons, but they're hairy and out of control. We don't need all of them. So the more we use the right ones, we selectively get rid of others. But now we don't know how to tell the brain which to get rid of. And this really messes with things in the hippocampus, a part of the brain that's involved in learning and memory. Lead also has many hematologic toxicities. For any non-medical listeners, that would be blood toxicity. Blood, that thing that carries oxygen, you need it. Lead, bad for your blood. Now, some of the effects that we see include making your red blood cells more fragile. It does this by inhibiting a transmembrane pump called, ah, no, nope, actually we're not doing this. We're not gonna talk about the biochemistry because you don't care. If you do care about the pump, I'll put it in the show notes, but I know the biochemistry effect. When I start talking about too many pumps and enzymes and this, that's, your eyeballs and your earballs glaze over and you stop listening. So we're not going to talk about that. How about this? Lead is soft and malleable. Iron is strong and hard. When you have too much lead, your blood starts to be made of lead and your blood cells are soft. They start to rip open. So lead poisoning actually causes your blood cells to break open. This is called hemolysis. Hemo like blood, lysis like split. Uh, so when your blood cells break open, well, the things inside of them pour out, and that would be hemoglobin. Remember, red blood cells carry oxygen with those proteins called hemoglobin. So when all that hemoglobin starts spilling into your blood because your soft lead-made red blood cells are breaking apart, well, the hemoglobin gets metabolized into bilirubin. That was that weird word that we said at the very beginning of the case. So bilirubin is a metabolite or a breakdown product of hemoglobin. And it's actually what's responsible for turning your skin yellow and jaundice and your eyes yellow, which is scleral icterus. So in bad lead poisoning, you can have hemolytic anemia, just like our patient in the case did. Okay, 
Then we have this other effect on the blood that actually helps us figure out whether this is an acute, like I just ate some lead yesterday exposure, or a chronic exposure like I've been crawling around on my hands in a lead-covered house for a couple weeks. So, you know hemoglobin carries oxygen, and most people know that hemoglobin has iron in it, I'm pretty sure. Well, how do I get that iron on there? Well, I use a special enzyme. It's called <coughs> ferroketolase. <coughs> I know I said no more biochemistry, but that's the enzyme. So... Lead looks a lot like iron. This enzyme is scrounging around the cell like, man, I got to get me some iron so I can make some hemoglobin. Well, when it sees lead, it doesn't have great eyesight. It's like, you look like iron. I'm going to try to put you on hemoglobin. It picks up the lead, but then it can't do anything with it because it's not actually iron. It's lead. Uh, so it stops making hemoglobin. Well, guess what? That's going to lead to a buildup of all the stuff that was supposed to become hemoglobin. Right? If I had a peanut butter and jelly factory, and I keep ordering peanut butter and jelly, but I stop making the sandwiches, well, I'm going to build up a big stockpile of peanut butter and jelly. And the peanut butter and jelly of heme synthesis are called portoporphyrins, specifically zinc and erythrocyte portoporphyrin, or ZPP and EPP. Usually, you have to have lead in you for at least a couple weeks to start seeing ZPP and EPP become elevated. So let's say you come into my office and I check your blood and your lead is high. Well, if your ZPP and EPP are high, then I know maybe there's some degree of chronic exposure going on. Now, not necessarily because other things can also cause these to become elevated, like anemia. Uh, but if it's not elevated, I at least have a good idea that maybe you just ate the lead recently. And of course, if I'm not making hemoglobin, I will have low hemoglobin. And low hemoglobin is called anemia. So you might have an anemia from your red blood cells blowing up from lead, or you could have an anemia from not producing enough hemoglobin. Okay, one last pretty important clinical effect because it's a clue for lead poisoning. I don't have a great way for you to remember why this happens. There's no fun correlate to how it looks like an ion. But lead inhibits an enzyme called pyrimidine 5-nucleotidase. Remember, one of the listeners referenced it in the email in the beginning of the show. So this enzyme is responsible for chewing up RNA, which is DNA's counterpart in the cell. So if I block this enzyme, all that RNA starts to clump up. And when you take a look at that blood under a microscope, you can see the clumping in special blood cells called basophils. This is called basophilic stippling. It's not present in all lead poisoning, and other things like anemia or other heavy metals can cause it, so it's not a highly sensitive or specific test, but it's a good clue to at least think about lead poisoning if you see it. If you're not familiar with the term sensitivity and specificity, check out the mini-episode that was published right before this. It's a good overview at how we evaluate how good our tests are at diagnosing disease. Okay, lead causes a lot of problems, so there's probably too many things for us to describe its toxicity. Uh, but just remember, it can affect everything. Most of it comes from the fact that it looks like other ions and it binds some proteins that are very important. And if you remember the toxic mechanisms, you can kind of remember the toxicities that we look for. So by looking like calcium, it follows places calcium goes. It can inhibit bone growth and lead to hypercalcification or lead lines on x-ray. You might see it in the teeth where calcium hangs out, although that's actually lead deposited by bacteria. It interferes with the calcium interplay in our brain. You can get cognitive behavioral abnormalities and motor neuropathies. It looks like iron. It can poison the blood. You see basophilic stippling, anemia, as well as erythrocyte and zinc portoporphyrin buildup. And it causes about a thousand other effects. Is there anything you can do to treat lead poisoning? Oh, no. What? What's wrong? 
Well, you're totally right. I mean, we have to talk about treatment. I don't know how we can't, but I'm not sure that everyone who's listening is going to care about all the nitty-gritty details in lead poisoning management. Okay, I think I have a good compromise here. Audience, I'm about to give a 20-second overview of lead poisoning management, at which point, if you don't care anymore, you can totally skip ahead to the rest of the episode. I mean, I'll talk more about the actual details of when we do what for lead poisoning, but if that's not something that you think will ever help you, Go ahead and skip ahead. You won't get in trouble, I promise. Or, you know, keep listening. Yep, that's fine, too. You probably won't hate it. Here's the 20-second overview. If you have lead in your body, we're going to get it out. If it's in your stomach, we might pluck it out. If it's past your stomach, well, we're going to do a bowel clean-out and pump your tummy so full of fluid that it washes out of you. If it's stuck past your small intestine, well, we might pluck it out from back there as well. If you already absorbed the lead and it's in your blood, we might try to get it out of your blood using an antidote called a chelator, which binds it and keeps it out of your tissues and lets you pee it out. Except those chelators can cause some medical problems, and really, we don't know how much they help in lead poisoning because most of the lead is in your bones anyways. I mean, they probably help if you're super duper sick, but it's not super clear in the lower or asymptomatic levels. Okay, that was more than 20 seconds, I lied. But you now have full permission to jump ahead to about a little after minute 54. Uh, If you want to move on with the rest of the show and hear the clinical case. If you want to hear about what those chelators are, what levels we actually start chelating at, you know, when we get worried about lead poisoning, and what we actually think chelation does, well, then keep listening. Because now we're going to dissect treatment a little bit more. Fortunately, for pediatric lead poisoning, the CDC has super explicit guidelines on what to do based on what level, what labs and imagings to get, and when to initiate treatment. So we follow the CDC treatment guidelines and rely on our core treatment principles of toxicology. There's four main things we worry about. First, decontaminate them. Get the toxin away from the patient. Go to the home and find the lead and get rid of it. If they ate lead, we're going to do an x-ray of their belly just to see if there's any lead in there getting absorbed. If there is some, we'll do a bowel clean-out, just like you would before a colonoscopy. It can be kind of tough to get little kids to drink tons and tons of Go Lightly, that fluid that we use to clean out the bowels. So sometimes we put in what's called a nasogastric tube. It's a tube that goes from the nose down to the belly, so we can just pump the fluid in and wash the little bodies right out. Then there's supportive cares. Well, if they have symptoms like abdominal pain, you can treat that, but there's not that much else to do. For reversing toxicity, once lead is done as damage, there's not a whole lot we can do other than prevent more damage. So enhancing elimination. We do have an antidote we can use called a chelator. Chelate is derived from the Greek word meaning claw. Chelators grab on to the positively charged lead molecule like a claw, and this prevents it from interacting with the body and causing toxicity. Many of them actually use those sulfur hydrogroups we talked about. That thing that lead likes to bind on proteins? Well, they can use that in chelators to bind lead. We have a few chelators that we use for lead, and the names are a bit of alphabet soup. First, we have our intramuscular chelator, BAL, or British anti-lewisite. Then we have an IV chelator, which is calcium disodium editate, or CA2NAEDTA. There's an oral and IV agent called DMPS, but it's pretty hard to get a hold of. Only compounding pharmacies can make it, so we're not going to talk much about it. Then we have some oral chelators, one being dimercaptic succinic acid, also known as DMSA, or more commonly, succimer. And then we have penicillamine, which nobody uses anymore. 
I think chelation makes people nervous because there are these seemingly weird rules about it. Like, you shouldn't start oral chelation until you've cleared the gut of lead, as it might increase lead absorption. Or how in certain seemingly random scenarios, you have to give a chelator a few hours before you give calcium disodium meditate, or you can redistribute lead from the bone to the brain. Those scenarios are generally when your levels are too high or if you have severe symptoms like encephalopathy. A lot of these sort of rules are the prevailing theories, but they're based on animal studies and sometimes they conflict, as well as it's pretty much just the dogma of how we've always done it and nobody really has come up with better regimens. So you might see variability in how toxicologists manage these certain caveats. But in general, these rules are still sort of followed. So let's talk about each key later and then how we use them. So BAL, the one that we give intramuscular, stands for British anti-lewisite. So back in World War I, there was this arsenic gas called lewisite, and when soldiers got exposed to it, it would cause irritation, blistering of the skin, and incapacitate the soldiers. So we needed an antidote. So the British came up with anti-lewisite, or British anti-lewisite, BAL. Another name for this is dimercaprol. I don't know why there are so many names for all these chelators. But it also chelates lead. So we use it for lead poisoning too. But remember, you have to be tough like a soldier to get this stuff. It is a painful, deep intramuscular injection. And it's suspended in peanut oil, so if you have a peanut allergy, you can't get it. And then there's this little fact that BAL can cause hemolysis or make your red blood cells explode if you have something called G6PD deficiency. So there's these weird little medical caveats that make people nervous when they're using this drug. Then we have our IV agent calcium disodium editate. So this is really great at grabbing lead from other parts of the body and bringing it into the blood so we can deliver it to the kidney and pee it out. However, there's some data to support that it can grab lead from other parts of the body, bring it to the blood, and then let the lead go free to redistribute back into places like the brain. So this would be pretty bad if we already have a patient who has severe brain lead poisoning, like lead encephalopathy or cerebral edema, and then we give them this drug and it starts scraping lead off the bones and shuttling it into the brain. And certain kids with higher levels, like over 70, might be at higher risk for that encephalopathy. So this is where our first weird little rule comes into play. If you have a patient with an elevated level over 70 or they have lead encephalopathy, we give another chelator before we give this drug so that they could pick up any lead that this chelator shuttles into the blood and accidentally lets go free to try to go to the brain. We'll talk more about that in just a minute. Oh yeah, and calcium disodium meditate sounds a lot like sodium meditate. Well, that's a drug that I think is no longer available in the U.S. because if you just give sodium meditate, well, you'll chelate all the kids' calcium instead of their lead, and they'll have seizures and arrhythmias. Okay, then we have oral succimer. This guy is really pretty well tolerated. Doesn't smell very good. Can cause rashes and elevations in your liver enzymes, but there's not much that we worry about, except for possibly increasing lead absorption if we haven't cleaned out their gut. We'll talk about that in a second. As long as you know about those possible pitfalls, they're not that hard to use. Then it just comes down to figuring out which agent you actually need. In general, it's all about how old you are, how severe your symptoms are, and how high your lead level is. Let's say you bring little Timmy to the pediatrician's office, and he gets screened for lead poisoning, and comes back with a venous blood lead level of 20. Do we need to rev up the chelators for little Timmy? Well, no. Generally, if you have an elevated blood lead level, like greater than 5, we'll do a good history and try to evaluate for sources of exposure, and also correct any nutritional deficiencies like calcium or iron deficiency that might be increasing the child's absorption of lead. 
It's not until a level of 20 that we usually start thinking about sending labs to evaluate for anemia and snapping an x-ray of the gut to see if there's any lead objects in there that we actually need to clean out that they could possibly be absorbing. Now, it's not until a level of 45 that we start thinking about chelation. And as long as you're below 70 and your symptoms aren't wildly severe, we'll do oral chelation, which means we'll use succimer. But if a kiddo still has some identifiable foreign lead bodies on x-ray and we need to wash that out, we usually won't start oral chelation yet. Mainly because, well, for one, if you're pumping go lightly through a kid while you're starting an oral drug, you're probably not going to absorb very much of the drug. So we usually wait until the bowel cleanout is done so that they can actually absorb it. And then we have the whole problem of maybe increasing absorption of lead. There's a few theories as to why maybe succimer binds lead in the gut and then that complex gets absorbed and it releases the lead when it crosses to the other side. Or maybe succimer binds free lead and that drives a gradient for the free lead in the gut to get absorbed. It's all pretty much based on animal data, and some of it actually even conflicts. But the prevailing thought is that in these kids, you know, they're relatively asymptomatic with a lead level. Whether I start chelating them now or in 12 hours after we've washed out the gut doesn't really make a big difference in their long-term outcomes. And this way, we can prevent at least a theoretical risk of more absorption. But because the data that supports this is so sketchy, you might see some variability. I mean, let's say you have a kid with a lead level of 55. So you want to start chelation, but you do an x-ray and you see some lead chips in the small intestine where most of lead is absorbed. So you start go lightly to clean them out and you get most of it through, but you still have some lead hanging out in the distal colon. I mean, how long are you going to let a kid sit with an elevated blood lead level just because he has some chips way down at the end where it's not really getting absorbed? So this is where you might see some variability. Some toxicologists might feel okay starting chelation at this point, while others might want more interventions to clear the lead from the gut. Okay, so that's if your level is 45 to 70. What if your level is over 70? Or if your symptoms are severe, we're probably going to do some IV chelation. And we can do IV calcium disodium editate. Oh, but here comes our second weird rule. If their level is too high, like over 70, like these kids, or they have encephalopathy, uh, well, then we're supposed to give another chelator a few hours before calcium disodium editate to prevent lead redistribution from tissue to the brain. So if you have an encephalopathic kid or real severe symptoms, you're probably not going to start with something oral, so we'll give intramuscular BAL four hours before the first dose of calcium disodium editate. If they have more mild symptoms and we're just using an IV agent because their level is over 70, well, you could actually use oral succimer instead of BAL to prevent the lead redistribution, which has the benefits of not having to give a deep intramuscular injection to a child. They tend not to enjoy that, but they have to be a candidate for succimer, so hopefully no lead in the small bowel. And how long to give succimer before your first dose of IV chelation might vary. I've seen some people say four hours and other people do it for a couple days before they start it. And of course, all the chelation in the world does no good if the kid just leaves the hospital and goes and eats more lead at their home. So we have to make sure their gut is cleaned out and their home is cleared from any re-exposure to lead. And this is usually why kids get hospitalized for lead poisoning. They just need a safe place to get their guts cleaned out and wait it out while the health department clears their home. For all this talk about when and how to start chelation, it's almost funny because we're not really sure how much chelation even helps in lead poisoning. In fact, the reason we use 45 as the cutoff to start thinking about chelation is super depressing. It goes back to a research article in 2001 in the New England Journal by a guy named Walter Rogan. 
They took kids with a lead level of 45 or less and compared either chelating them up to three times or just doing regular decontamination and home abatement. And what they found was that at one year, there was really no difference in any neurocognitive or behavioral disorders, and there was also no difference in their total lead level. So it really didn't matter whether they got chelated or not. So we have some depressing data that shows below 45, if I chelate you, it's not going to prevent you from having neurocognitive problems later in life. I guess I don't technically know that above 45, there isn't a benefit, so I guess we can try it, but it's not really proven. It probably helps in severe cases where levels are really high and we need to rapidly reduce them. But for these asymptomatic or lower lead levels, it's not really clear that we can reduce the likelihood of these negative neuro effects like lower IQ and behavioral abnormalities by clearing the small percentage of lead that's in their blood. Remember, most of lead is stored in the bone, so even after we clear the blood compartment, we frequently have to re-chelate these kids later because they get lead that redistributes from their bones back into the blood and can get into other organs. Wow, I'm sad. It's okay, Toxo. I'll program that out of you later. But since we know that chelation might have a limited impact as it is, it just reinforces that decontamination is the mainstay of lead treatment, reducing exposure in the home and getting whatever lead they have in their belly out of there. Which is where we can get into the weeds a lot. If kiddos have a large amount of lead burden in their stomach, like from eating a bunch of bullets or various lead fishing sinkers, sometimes we need to go into the stomach and pluck them out. Well, not me. A gastroenterologist has to go into the stomach and pluck them out. And that's if we can even do that. Kids eat all sorts of tiny little lead fragments, too. If a kid eats a handful of lead buckshot, they've got a lot of pellets to clear, and some of them might get past the stomach before they could get plucked out. So that's a kid who we might hospitalize for whole bowel irrigation. In fact, this has led to some of my favorite consults, where a kid gets hospitalized and they count a certain amount of pellets on the first x-ray, and then they frantically start trying to count all the pellets that are coming out in their stool output, and I get a call from a pretty frustrated pediatric resident who's been spending a lot of time looking through stool to figure out when the last pellet will come out. And I get to tell them, stop looking through the stool and just repeat an x-ray. Okay, let's change gears super fast and do a quick summary of adult lead poisoning. Most adults are getting lead poisoned from an occupational exposure or from a hobby, so doing a good history to figure out source is super important. Then there's two guidelines, one from OSHA and one from a group of occupational health docs. Most of the recommendations are looking at how to reduce lead exposure in the workplace and get them back safely. Some guidelines suggest chelating symptomatic patients at a level of 50 and asymptomatic patients at a level of 80 or 100. But exactly when and how to start chelation might be a little bit different between providers. I think we can really summarize things with, if you have anyone with a detectable lead level, call your poison center or your toxicology service. We would love to get involved and help figure out where the lead came from, how we should treat it, and how we should follow it up. Brian, are we ever going to get to the clinical case? Well, now that we're all lead experts, I think it's time. So we had a patient with four weeks of abdominal pain and basophilic stippling. He also had hemolytic anemia and an elevated T. bilirubin, as well as left lower extremity weakness. Maybe abdominal gripes, left lower extremity dangles, anemia, basophilic stippling? Sounds like a lead toxidrome to me. Now, many things can cause hemolytic anemia or abdominal pain or motor neuropathies. But with basophilic stippling, it's reasonable to check a blood lead level. And we did. We also checked a few other levels like copper, as other metals can lead to basophilic stippling. But the blood lead level came back at 200. 
100 mics per deciliter. A lot of people, if you're a toxicologist at least, just had your jaws drop. That's pretty high. Uh, the patient was relatively asymptomatic, just abdominal pain. He did have weight loss, anorexia. I mean, it wasn't a not severe case, but there was no encephalopathy. The patient was still able to respond appropriately and seemed to have very minor neurologic deficits. So where did the lead come from? This is a pretty high level. Well, we know our normal exposures for adults are generally occupational or hobbies. He works as a cleaner, and he lives at home. No clear source of lead as a cleaner. At home, if he's exposed, everyone else is probably exposed too. So we have to ask some very pointed questions. And for us, anyone with a high enough lead level automatically has the Department of Health Services involved to do a interview and try to evaluate sources of lead as well as inspect the home. So our awesome colleagues at the DHS began an investigation, finding out where they work, what kind of hobbies they were involved in, whether there was any recent home renovation, and sent people out to test levels of lead in the home. The paint lead levels were 3.6%. That's not the 50% of the old 1940s lead, but that's still pretty high. Remember, since 1978, 0.06% is the maximum allowable lead level. And of course, we have to also test any family members. And his son also tested positive for lead. He had a lead level of 10. Nothing we need to intervene on, but we do need to follow up on that and investigate where the source of the child's lead was, which was likely the paint. But now I have a child with a lead level and a father with a lead level and paint with lead in it. But something is not adding up. The dad's lead level is 200, and the kid's lead level is 10. Also, adults don't really get lead poisoning from eating paint, unless they have a disorder like pica, where they compulsively eat certain things. But basically, dad would have to be eating a bucket of paint scrapings, and maybe the kiddo just got a scrap of it for that to be the case. And he did not mention anything about that and seemed pretty reliable, so I don't think that's what was happening. So, can we somehow confirm that these are the same lead exposures? Well, let me back up for a moment. See, atoms are made up of particles. The positive ones are called protons, the negative ones are called electrons. And the amount of protons that you have is what determines what the atom is. Every single lead has 82 protons. That's what makes it lead. If you have 81, you're thallium. If you have 83, you're bismuth. You must have 82 to be lead. No ifs, ands, or buts. But there's this other particle called a neutron, and it doesn't carry a charge, and there are various amounts of neutrons in any one given lead atom. Some might have 83 neutrons. Some might have 84. These are called isotopes. And it makes lead atoms way different amounts based on the amount of neutrons that they have. And it's how we can tell one source of lead from another. Because if both dad and the son were getting exposed to the same lead, it should weigh the same, right? So that's exactly what we did. If you ever think that medicine is like house, where you have somebody sitting behind a giant computer screen that looks like it's doing huge calculations, and then suddenly something dings and you go, Eureka! It's lupus! Well, 99% of the time that's not true, but this was like a house moment. This was one of the coolest things I've ever even heard of. 
This is why you want to make friends with your health department, because they can do some pretty interesting testing. So we actually sent the lead from the dad and the son and the paint for isotopic analysis. And lo and behold, the dad's lead was a different isotope than the child's or the paint's. Also, the child's lead was a different isotope than the paint. That is a whole other story. But it's clear that the father's lead is not matching the child's lead. So what other source do we have for the father's lead poisoning? He doesn't work in soldering or smelting, and he's not a locksmith. He doesn't do any home remodeling, and he has no lead hobbies like shooting guns at a gun range. But wait a second. Wait. He has a gunshot wound. And bullets are made of lead. Actually, about 5.5 milligrams per bullet in your normal 9 millimeter. Now, some of you are probably thinking, well, why does that matter? They took the bullet out, right? Well, actually, no. After you get shot, the priority is usually stabilizing you to keep you from having serious organ damage, not taking the bullet out. And afterwards, the bullet is usually left in unless it's in a place where it's causing damage. So a bullet might get taken out if it's in the eye, the brain, or a highly vascular area like your palms or soles, joints, arteries, or bones, or maybe if it's causing a problem like pinching a nerve. And even though that sounds like a lot of different things that could get a bullet taken out, most of your body is actually just fat skin and muscle. And if the bullet lands there and it's not causing any problems, it's probably just going to get left there because the surgery to take it out might be more invasive than just letting it sit. The body eventually sees the bullet, and the immune system walls it off into a fibrous capsule, which isolates it from the rest of the body and prevents lead poisoning, at least in theory. It's really not clear how many people get lead poisoning from RBF. Nope, Toxo retained bullet fragments. I know what you're thinking. So a study called a meta-analysis that pulls together all the other studies out there in the literature, showed that patients who have retained bullet fragments have a higher blood lead level by about 5.5 mics per deciliter compared to people without bullets. That's not an insignificant lead level. It's high enough to cause chronic disease. Another study found that about 40% of gunshot wound patients had lead levels greater than 10 at 3 months. So, at least in some studies, about half of people with a gunshot wound are winding up with detectable lead levels. But probably few of them are getting symptomatic enough to seek healthcare treatment. And even if they do, there's a really good chance that their entire diagnosis of lead poisoning will be missed, like in the case we talked about today. Our patient was hospitalized for two and a half weeks before he had to go to another ER just to find out that it was lead poisoning. The symptoms of lead poisoning are insidious and sneaky enough that they're rarely suspected, and having a retained bullet probably won't make people think lead poisoning. It's not exactly routine practice to screen for lead poisoning in those who have retained bullets, but the authors of the most recent meta-analysis published in March of 2020 actually suggest screening for blood lead levels every three months for the first year after a gunshot wound. And if it's elevated, consider trying to remove the bullet. Or maybe we should only screen the highest risk gunshot wounds. 
Not all gunshot wounds are created equal in terms of their risk of causing lead poisoning. See, it's theorized that if the bullet lands in a joint or spinal fluid or vascular beds, there's a higher risk of lead poisoning because those are all areas where fluid can wash over and erode the lead away, like a river cutting through a rock. Gunshot wounds that cause long bone or torso bone fractures also appear to increase the risk. See, bone fragments associated with a fracture are reabsorbed during the healing process. And during bone resorption, if there's lead pittered about in the bone fragments, it will also be returned to the blood circulation. And if a gunshot wound strikes a bone, it's more likely to break apart and fragment. And the more retained bullet fragments you have, the more surface area of bullet that the tissue is exposed to. So one large bullet only will expose the outsides of the bullet to the tissue, but multiple little fragments can expose much more of it to the tissue. So risk factors for lead poisoning after a gunshot wound include being near joints or long bones, torso and long bone fractures, and high amounts of retained bullet fragments. The gentleman in our case, well, he had a gunshot wound in his extremity 10 years ago. There was no fracture, but he did report that he used to be able to feel it in his extremity. And after his car accident, he could no longer feel the bullet in his thigh. It's possible that it migrated or was somehow dislodged from the fibrous capsule that was encapsulating it. Now, we're assuming this was going on for a while. His symptoms had been going on for at least a month, and we checked his zinc and erythrocyte protoporphyrin, and they were elevated. That's a little bit difficult to interpret because he had an anemia already, so that can actually raise your EPP and ZPP, but we think the anemia was probably from the lead. So how do we figure out if the bullet was the cause? Well, we have to have the surgeon take it out and see if his blood lead level goes down. It was causing him pain anyways, so that could be an indication to remove the bullet, but it's very convincing to have isotopic analysis to show the surgeon and say, he's not being lead poisoned from home, we should take this bullet out. So the bullet fragments were removed, and we did isotopic analysis on the bullet, and it matched the patient's blood lead. This is truly the future. That was a wild ride. But we still have a problem. This guy's lead level was 200 when he showed up, so how do we deal with that? Well, as we said before, there's not a clear consensus on when you should start parenteral, meaning intramuscular or IV chelation, but a lead level of 200 is pretty astronomical. And given that he was so lead poisoned that his red blood cells were bursting, we thought it would be a good idea to start with parenteral chelation. So on day 11, when we actually figured out this was lead, we started him on intramuscular BAL and calcium disodium editate. It rapidly decreases level from 200 down to 114 the next day and down to about 50 within a few days. He actually went for surgery on day 18 to get the bullet removed and was discharged home on oral succimer. And at two-month follow-up, his lead level had actually rebounded all the way back up to 78, requiring further treatment. If you want to read more about the case, the published case report is available in the show notes. We covered a lot of topic today. Lead is not just a heavy metal. It's a heavy subject. Here's a rapid-fire review of the things we learned today. Lead is endemic and everywhere. What has been done so far is a massive public health victory, but much work still needs to occur. 
Common reasons for lead exposure include lead paint, lead paint dust or remodeling old lead painted homes, soil, water from pipes that haven't been appropriately treated, weird things like traditional medicines or cosmetic products, as well as occupational exposures. And we probably shouldn't forget about bullets. The likelihood of lead poisoning from a retained bullet is higher if it's near a long bone or a joint or there's multiple retained bullet fragments. Symptoms of lead can be subtle or severe, and it affects many organ systems. Small changes in mood or daytime sleepiness or chronic disease like high blood pressure or kidney damage. But other common symptoms might be the gripes and the dangles, abdominal pain, and motor neuropathies. It also loves to follow calcium. You can see Burton lines between the tooth and the gum, as well as lead lines on x-ray, which are actually hypercalcifications. And of course, it poisons our blood, so we can look for signs there. Anemia, basophilic stippling, and elevated zinc or erythrocyte protoporphyrin might be present. Treatment for lead involves finding the source. It's important to ask about occupations, hobbies, home remodeling, and who lives at home. You should work closely with your health department to find a source of lead exposure. If you have a blood lead level that is not zero, call your local poison center, 1-800-222-1222, or your toxicology service, and they'll help you figure out where the lead came from, what we need to do about it, and whether chelation needs to be considered. All right, today was a long episode, so thanks for sticking with it. I hope you learned something about lead. You can listen to this show wherever you listen to podcasts, and you can find all of our episodes, show notes, free medical education learning games and lectures, as well as other talks resources at thepoisonlab.com. Follow Toxo on Twitter at Lab Poison and myself at EMPoisonFarmD. And we have an Instagram at Tox underscore Talk. And of course, reach out to the show via email at ToxTalk1 at gmail.com. We are going to play the intro to our next episode. And if you think you know what we're dealing with, just like this episode, I want you to write in. And we'll read through the answers at the beginning of the next show. Okay, Toxo. Can you pretty please roll the intro to the next show? A healthy 13-month-old boy was found with a pill in their mouth. The pill was taken out and the child was fed and put to sleep. There was no attempt to seek medical advice or contact a poison center after the child was found with the pill. The following morning, about eight hours later, the child was found unresponsive in their crib. Emergency medical services were contacted, and on arrival, the child was not breathing and had no pulse. Resuscitation with epinephrine and chest compressions was started, but tragically, they were not successful. They were pronounced dead on arrival to the nearest emergency department. Alright, that's it for today's show. If you think you know what drug might have caused that really tragic situation, send us an email. Let us know what you think it might be and why you think that's what it is. Thanks for listening today. Hey, Toxo. Can you play us out? The information on this show is for educational purposes only and should not be interpreted as medical advice or treatment recommendations. Please contact your doctor for any health questions or call your local poison center at 1-800-222-1222 for poison-related questions. This show is poorly written and shoddily produced by Ryan Feldman. Subscribe for future episodes and don't forget to share with your nerdy friends. See you next time. Goodbye. Goodbye.